0: Thank you for listening to the New Life Church podcast. If you need any information about our church, or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at
1: newlifekingman.com. Amen. you could be seated this morning. Praise God. But isn't that a wonderful song? I love it. I love that song. It just speaks so much to uh, just the reality of, of not only our need for God, but also His willingness and His ability to minister to our lives. We're releasing all uh, the uh, teenagers right now, junior high, high school. You are free to go out and back with Alex and they got a service for you back there. Before we get into our message today, I'm gonna invite a couple, uh, uh, Tony and Carol, uh, as they come make their way up front, just let me explain. They teach our New Life 101 class, and so they wanted to just take just a couple moments this morning and just share with you um, about this class and what God is doing, so. Thank you, Pastor, good morning. Yeah, just take a minute. It'll it'll take a minute. Hang on. I
0: just want to take a few minutes and share about the foundation class. In my years of pastoring, I've noticed a few things, and one of them is people get saved, they repent, ask Jesus in their heart, get water baptized, and they start running that race that Paul talks about. But over a period of time, they grow weary circumstances, battles from the enemy, a lot of different things. But we've been called to run the race. The victory is in running the race. And this class that we have is to help you and help us run the race, be encouraged, grow in the word. We can come to church on Sunday mornings, and this is the best church to be on Sunday mornings. But let me ask you something: If you're running a physical, a physical marathon and you had just one meal that week, how would your race be? You'd get wore out, wouldn't you? You wouldn't run it like you'd want to. Same thing's true here. It's more than just Sunday morning. This is this is a blessing. We spent years looking for this church, but it's more than that. It's growing in the Holy Spirit. It's growing in the Word. And that's what this class is all about. So we encourage you to sign up, and uh, we're going to have four weeks, and we're going to have a great time, and we're believing God to touch your life in Jesus' name.
1: Praise God. Give
0: them a hand. Amen. So they,
1: you can sign up in the foyer after service, and, and uh, um, I believe you'll have a great time in that class. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me over to Mark. The book of Mark, chapter nine, this morning, and I'm going to begin by reading this passage of scripture, and just to uh, start there today. I just believe, you know, we had a really good time. It was a I, what it was an intense time in the 8:30 service, uh, and so I believe God really is speaking. Uh, to our lives. I know he's speaking to mine. And so, Mark chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, very familiar passage of Scripture from a very familiar story. But what we need to do today is we really do need to pull out of this everything that we can. Can you say amen? So, Jesus says, and starting in verse 23, it says, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, that statement, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is a statement that I think that if we would be honest, everyone in this room has said from time to time and multiple times over. Can you say amen? Amen. And we always say that, 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 That statement comes when we are hit with a crisis of faith and we are struggling to believe. Now, this morning, let me just put this little disclaimer out there a little bit. This sermon is really about getting honest, okay? It's about getting real. And when I say getting honest and getting real, what what I mean by that, let me see if I can explain to you what I mean. Christians have a really unique way of giving the right answer instead of the real answer. He said, "What do you mean by that?" Well, if if somebody comes up to you and says, "How are you doing?" we go, "Yeah, great, praise God." Meanwhile, internally we're collapsing. Amen. Or we're struggling or something's going on. Or if somebody comes up, and I know this is kind of a little bit clichéish and obvious, but if somebody says, are you mad at God? Well, of course not. I'm not mad at God. Being mad at God is just a dumb thing to do, isn't it? But I guarantee you, every one of us have been mad at God from time to time. We didn't like what he did or not do. Amen? And so we have a tendency to give the answer what we believe the other person wants to hear rather than giving the answer that is legitimate or real. And so we have a tendency to be a little bit disingenuous with our lives and our feelings because we're always presenting this picture that I got it all together. Now let me say this too. Let me just make sure that I give equal balance here. I do think that we should be positive. I think that we should go forward and put our best foot forward. I think we should give a, 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 a real faith-filled presentation of our lives. But the truth is, from time to time, we do struggle. From time to time, we wrestle with our faith. Can you say amen? We wrestle with what's going on. And we do go into seasons where our faith is challenged. It doesn't matter if it's a health issue or a financial issue, or a a relationship that has found itself on the rocks, or our own spiritual well-being. The point is that something is out of joint, and it hurts. It's working on our minds, and we are wondering, when will all this end? Amen. I have counseled enough people to know that I'm not alone in this. And I know that there are times, there's been times in my life that I've wanted I've shouted, God, help me. When when will this be done? Amen. See, we are taught in those kinds of times and we're taught in those seasons that we are to pray and that we're to get a hold of God and we're to stand on the promises of God and we are to declare our faith and we are to speak to mountains and when things are going good those things are wonderful but then there are those times when the answer is delayed healing doesn't come finances seem to dwindle relationships seem to continue to deteriorate and we ask ourselves, what then? What now? I've done, I've, I've prayed, I've, I've, I've I got a hold of God. I stood on his promises. I've declared my faith. I've spoke to the mountain and nothing seems to be changing. And we believe because we know too much not to believe. But we're struggling with our belief. And it's right there that the devil really begins to stir the pot. It's right there where he begins to work on our minds and tells us all kinds of things that are not true. So in our text, we see a crisis of faith that we can all identify with. Jesus has taken Peter and James and John to the Mount of Transfiguration and the rest of the disciples are ministering in town. And a desperate father brings his son to the disciples to be healed, but nothing happens. Amen. He brings them to the very first healing center, the healing room. He brings them to the church where the men of God are. He's witnessed these guys do other things before, but this time... Nothing happens. Jesus comes on the scene. He's fresh from his transfiguration and people are arguing and fighting. And I can imagine it's total chaos because the Pharisees come on the scene and the disciples are defending what they believe but they don't know why things aren't working. And so they're back and forth and it's stirring a crowd and people are coming. Meanwhile, here is this man and he sees Jesus coming And he runs to him. And he explains to Jesus how he brought his son to the disciples. But nothing changed. Jesus, it appears, is a little frustrated with his disciples and with all that's going on. And he looks at the father and says, if you can believe, all things are possible. And there it is. There it is our greatest struggle remember i said we're going to get honest right jesus said if you can believe all things are possible huh if i can believe if i can believe if i can believe the father's response is probably one of the most remarkable and honest statements in all of the word of God, because he says, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. He's struggling, and he's willing to acknowledge the struggle. I think the thing that gets Christians in a lot of trouble today is they're just not willing to acknowledge the struggle. We do one of two things. We either, we stand over here in some sort of false ego and pride, as if we're bulletproof or we stand over here in this extreme and we glorify the struggle and that's all we talk about well I want to talk about this subject honestly because I believe this can actually help you this can actually cause you to grow So as we take a few minutes to look at this struggle, we need to know a few things up front. Number one, there is a a remarkable reality about our lives. We can have both faith and doubt present at the same time. In your heart, you can both have faith and doubt at the same time. And we see this reality all through Scripture. Peter who walked on the water. He had the faith to get out of the boat and walk to Jesus. But then at the same moment, he begins to look at the wind and waves and he begins to sink faith and doubt operating at the same time. Thomas declared, I will never believe until I see his hands and his side. But yet Thomas is one of the most courageous men of all the disciples. The Psalms is filled with examples where people wrestle out loud with their unbelief. Think about it this way In any garden, there are two types of seed present at any given time. There are those seeds that are planted by the gardener, and then there are those seeds that are natural in the soil. Both grow in the same soil. They compete for the same water. They struggle for the same nutrients. The seeds that thrive are those that the gardener pays attention to. Think about it for a moment. A lot of you garden. You grow flowers, you grow vegetables, you have a garden. You went out. You were deliberate. You went out, you, you formed your garden, you, you got your t- tilled your soil, you got everything ready, and then you went out and you planted tomatoes and carrots and onions and cucumbers and radishes and squash and on and on and on, pumpkins, everything else. You planted it. You were deliberate and you got this garden. And then you went out there and you took a handful of weed seeds and you threw in there. No, 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 you didn't. You planted what you wanted, but then overnight, as things begin to do what they do in the soil, you notice something. Both the things that you wanted begin to grow, but then there was things you didn't want that grew. And it's like, how, how, how is that? How, how is that? How is it that present... With what I deliberately do are things that are working against my goal. And if you leave your garden untended, the weeds will take over. And so in every heart, there are, there's both doubt and unbelief. Consider for a moment the parable of the sower and the seed. In Matthew thirteen twenty two, it says this, Now he who receives seed among the thorns... Is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. We know from studying this parable that the seed is the word of God planted in the heart of a person, but the cares of this world also exist in that heart. Two seeds, one soil, and the one that grows Is the one we cultivate. Weeds and tomatoes, faith and doubt, you choose. Number two, many people think doubt is unforgivable. We put ourselves under such scrutiny and such um, uh, responsibility and demands that I don't believe God's doing. Oh, we hear verses like Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that says it's impossible to believe God without faith. And it's absolutely true. And so what we do is the moment we have one departure from faith or the moment we struggle one little bit, we allow condemnation to come on our lives and go, well, I guess God don't like me anymore. I guess God doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. I guess that, you know what, I'm a failure at this thing called Christianity. But it just simply is not true. God does not condemn us when we question Him. Listen, both Job and David repeatedly questioned God, but they were not condemned. He said, how do you know that? Listen, Psalms 13, this is a psalm written by David. Psalm 13, verse 1, going through verse 6, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. What is the point of that? God is big enough to handle all your doubts and all your questions. If there was ever a man that had grown to love God, it is the man that is known as the man after God's own heart. He loved God. He worshipped God. He fellowshipped with God. Yet this man had many flaws, many difficulties. He struggled. And oftentimes he struggled within himself of his own belief system. But what does he do? What is the example that he does? Is he takes it to God. Because he knew God was big enough to handle it. Number three. Many people think struggling with God means we lack faith, but I declare to you that's not true at all. Many times, struggling is the means by which our faith grows and matures. Are you hearing me? many times that struggle that 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 battle that wrestling that resistance as it were is what is strengthening the muscle of faith number 4 doubt and unbelief are a common temptation for all believers it's absolutely true there's not a person there's not a man woman or child i don't care how significantly anointed or the things that they do in life there is not a person on the planet that does not struggle with their faith and it's an enemy that we must fight vigorously doubt must be challenged I was asked a question a few weeks ago while counseling. The person asked me, said, do you ever doubt? And I said, well, how many times do you want to know today? My answer really is all the time. And I know that as a preacher, when I preach, I sound very certain. And part of that is because it's intentional. Part of it is the anointing. I I don't know how to explain this to you, but there is a physical uh, manifestation of the anointing. I can feel it. I know when it's there. Um, I believe personally the anointing is always there, but it's it's not always manifest. I believe that I'm always anointed, but when I get behind, even though this is a music stand, but when I get behind what many have called a sacred desk, when I am addressing the people of God, there is an anointing because of the calling of my life that rises up and begins to move, and I can feel a physical manifestation. And what I call it is I do feel bulletproof at that point. There is a courage and a strength, and it's like, no, I got this. And it's that anointing. And I know that I can come across very certain and also the reason it is because I know what I believe. Yeah. I'm confident in sharing it. I'm not bashful. I'm not bashful about what I believe. I, I've, I, and I know this is going to sound a little bit like I'm making it about me, but it's not. But I have spend, spent my time studying. That doesn't mean that I got it all down because I don't. I don't have it all down, and there are things that God's adjusting in me on a regular basis. He's refining in me and working things out. But I am very certain when I preach. But let me share with you, in my life, I have doubts and questions that come to my mind every single day. I don't know how a person could be a Christian and not have doubts from time to time so as we look into this i want to go a little deeper and i want to look at three men that doubted and i want to see how jesus actually dealt with them i want to see jesus's reaction to these men the first one is our the father in our text this this father of this boy who is traumatized he is tormented. There is obviously a demon that at, at work. The man even says, he says, every time the demon grips him, he throws him to the ground and he'll throw him into the fire or the water. And this demon is trying to destroy and to kill this young man and there's seizures, and there's all kinds of things that are going on. He can't talk, and, and it's, it's nothing but torment. And I will say to you that every parent understands the struggle of the father in our text. That he, we understand what this man feels. Who among us that has not looked down at a sick child and felt fear? We felt worry and doubt, and it became overwhelming. Because the truth is, oftentimes, it's much easier <coughs> for us to maintain our faith when we are sick. But when we look at a loved one, someone that we cherish, a child or a, a husband or a wife or a parent, and they're going through this and we, we think to ourselves, I, I would just, if I could, I would take it from you. I would put it on me so that you don't have to deal with this. But when our children suffer... Our whole world seems to go into question. And if the suffering is great, and surely in this instance it was, we may find that we can hardly pray because fear has gripped us so strongly. And in these intense moments like this, we may even begin to doubt God's presence and His goodness and we may even wonder if somehow god has abandoned us remember we're getting honest many times if we see no change in our situation we even become angry at god and we can turn to from him altogether we can get angry I remember when my mother passed away, my mom died February 20th, 2001, she was diagnosed with lung cancer, December 4th, 2000, so it was, I don't know, 70 days, 75 days, went from diagnosis to to death, and I remember when she was in the hospital room and she had received the diagnosis, we came in and I was sitting with her, her, my, my mom, my dad, and myself, and I said, okay, so what do you, I looked at my mom and I said, what do you want? She says, I want to be healed. And I said, okay. And she goes, and I will, she goes, I will declare his goodness everywhere I go. Okay. So that's what we fought for. We, we allowed doctors to be doctors and do what they do and the treatments they do. But we also stood on the promises of the Word of God. And you know what? We saw miracles through that 75 days. There was a time when my mom, uh, because of the medication that they had her on, she would have these horrible, horrible, horrible cramps in her legs. I mean, charley horses all over. You could actually see the knot ball up. And I mean, it was just excruciating And I remember one day she was sitting in her chair at home and I walked in and she was having one of these spells and they're all over, there's four or five on her legs. And I remember I looked, I put my hands on her feet and I said, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. And every one of them gone, just like that. Boom. I remember one time because her cancer was lung cancer, and it was it was traveling from one lung to the other in this spot where the two lungs, and that's why it was inoperable and the pain was horrific. But also it felt like she was suffocating. And I remember coming in one day and she was having a panic attack because she felt like she was suffocating. And I just grabbed her hands and I began to speak the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus brought release, and that panic attack and the breathing opened up. I remember there was a time when she finally went into hospice and she was in that room and she hadn't talked for several days, hadn't eaten for several days. And I grabbed her hands and I looked at her and I said, in the name of Jesus, your, your digestion is restored. Your, your appetite is brought back and you will speak. And that night she talked to the nurses, ate a full dinner. The next day she ate a great big bowl of fruit that I brought to her. And we thought, man, the miracle is happening. And the next day, She went into glory. She went to be with Jesus. Miracles. Unexplainable. And there was a moment when I said, God, what is up? And I was struggling in my faith. And I said, God, I believe. But help my unbelief. In other words, Lord, I know you can, but I'm not sure you will. I never doubt God's ability. God is God. He's supernatural. He is, he is, he is the creator of heaven and earth. He, he measures the universe in the span of his hand. That's, that's from his t- thumb tip to his, the universe. The, the waters are weighed in the palm of his hand. Our God is an awesome God and he's a good father. He's off, awesome. So I never question his ability. No doubt. One, one flash of his eyelash and everything can be different. Just not sure he will. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 through 3 captures this. It says when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him and behold, a leper came and worshiped him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left and he was cleansed. The statement that this man makes is loaded with both faith and uncertainty. If you want to. You could make me clean. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke him for his lack of perfect faith, but he meets him right where he is. And evidently, the faith mattered more than the doubt because he simply heals him. In our text, The healing that the father desperately desires hangs in the balance of his own belief system. But he's struggling. Why? Because his experience tells him that his situation is impossible. But will he believe? Can he believe? And from his heart comes this statement. I believe help my unbelief notice the aspects of this statement number 1 he admitted his need number 2 he admitted it to the right person here you know, i think the problem is is we oftentimes go to the wrong people and oftentimes we go to people and we go to talk more about our doubt than we do our faith and then he asked for help the help he needed. It is my belief, that is what Jesus is looking for from us, is honesty. The second guy that I want you to look at is John the Baptist. Do you remember when Herod threw John, in the, John the Baptist in jail because John dared to rebuke him for his sin? I am certain that John the Baptist is confused, he's frustrated, He's in jail. He's struggling. And John at some point sends his disciples with a message with a very penetrating question. Matthew eleven two 2 and 3 says, And when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now make no mistake about it, John knew who Jesus was. There's no doubt about it. John knew Jesus was the Messiah. But what's different now? He's in prison. And he's struggling. Not knowing if or when he's going to be released. And he's thinking in his mind, I'm about ready to lose my head for this. I'm about ready to make a big sacrifice. Did I make the right decision? Do I really... Really know what I think I know. And he began to wonder. And then he began to doubt. But Jesus doesn't rebuke John or put him down. He simply gives John the evidence he needs in order to regain his faith. He says, go back and tell John what you've seen. Go tell him the dead are raised, the blind see, the deaf hear. And and God is moving and the gospel is preached to the poor. You go tell him what I'm doing. And then... He looked at the crowd in Matthew eleven eleven. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, woman, women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what's happening? Jesus, not only does he not condemn John, he doesn't look at the disciples, John's disciples and say, yeah, go back and you tell him, hey, you need to get it together, buddy. You signed up for this. This is what you've signed up for. I've had that thought. I've actually had people say that to me. I've actually, you know, being in a struggling moment and have people go, well, what did you expect? You wanted to be a pastor. You made your bed, live in it. Huh? But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't look at John and go, come on, man. You're supposed to be Elijah. If you study your Bible, you know what that means. You're supposed to be all that in a bag of chips. He doesn't do that. But what does he do? He says, "Look at, I want to show you, John, the kingdom of God. What you said is coming to pass. You got it dead on. It was right on, John. And then he looks at the crowd and he says, "He is all that and a bag of chips." The third guy I want you to see is Thomas. It's impossible to talk or to preach a message about doubt without considering the man whose name has become synonymous with doubt. He's known as Doubting Thomas. 2,000 years. One moment of doubt. And he's doubting. How many how many's ever watched the show MASH? There's a great scene in MASH Hawkeye the, the primary character he's having these kind of these dreams he's sleepwalking and so he, he, you know because of the stress and all of that of war and so one night he's out in the in the camp the compound and he's playing marbles you know fake he's sleepwalking and Radar comes up and, and Hawkeye looks at him while he's asleep he goes hey stinky and Radar says hey that's kind, that's a kind that's the kind of nickname that sticks with the guy I don't want to be known by that. And so the scene goes on and then Hawkeye goes back to bed and, and then Klinger comes out and goes, come on, Stinky, let's go. He goes, I knew it, I knew it. This is Doubting Thomas. He goes, man, one time, once. And now I'm known as Doubting Thomas. If you actually go do a study of Thomas, you'll find out that Thomas went to India and had revival beyond belief. Thomas is not an unbelieving skeptic. He's a wounded believer. He just witnessed horrific things. He saw his Lord and Savior crucified and buried. He's wounded. And he says, I'm not willing to believe. In fact, what he was saying is, I'm at this moment not able to believe. And we tend to look down on him, but Jesus doesn't. Because eight days later, Jesus appears to the disciples a second time. And Thomas is there. And Jesus makes a point to speak to him. And listen to what he says in John 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. He met him where he was at. And as far as anyone can tell, Thomas never actually touched Jesus. It seemed that simply seeing him face to face completely convinced him. And, and then Thomas went, my Lord and my God. And he was never the same. See, doubt has its uses because it can be a doorway to even deeper faith. Are you hearing me? One man said this, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Listen to me, doubt is not sinful, but it can be dangerous. This is important that you hear what I'm saying. Doubt is not sinful, but it is dangerous. Because if you leave it unattended, it will take over your garden. But doubt can also be the catalyst to spur enormous spiritual growth. Here's the key. All that matters is what you do with your doubts. And as we are bringing this to an end, I want to give you seven simple suggestions on how to handle your doubt this morning. Number one, admit your doubts and ask for help. That's what the Father did in the text, isn't it? That's what John the Baptist did. And in a way, that's what Thomas did. See, God's not fragile. See, religion has made God some porcelain God that at the slightest little breeze, he cracks all together. God is not fragile. God can handle your doubts. He can handle your fears, your worries, and your unanswered questions. Listen to Psalm 94, 17 through, uh, 7, 17 through 19. Unless the Lord had helped me, I would soon have settled in the silence of the grave. I cried out, I'm slipping But your unfailing love, O Lord, supported me. When doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. And in Psalm 61, he says it this way, Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer, and from the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He's a big God. He runs the universe without help. Your doubts, your fears, your worries... Your questions will not upset him. Number two, recognize that faith is a choice, not a feeling. Now, there are those that will look at you and say, no, 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 faith. Faith faith is a gift. It was given to you by God, and that is true. Every man is given the measure of faith. But the activation of that faith is a choice and not a feeling took me a long time to figure this out because for many years I tended to associate my faith with how I felt at any given moment. It's easy to feel like you got a lot of faith when all is well and, and, and it's even easier to think you have no faith when everything goes bad. And listen this morning, if all you got is a God of good times, then your faith is shallow for sure. And I've learned Since then, that faith is a choice that you make. It's a choice that says, I choose to operate in faith. I choose to believe in spite of what is going on or what I can see. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There are times in my life when I get in my truck after working in the office, and I'm driving down the road, and I have to say out loud, I choose to believe. I believe you. I believe. Number f- three, don't be afraid to borrow some faith. See, when you find yourself filled with doubts, go find somebody filled with faith and borrow some of theirs. It works. See, the problem is, church, what we do is we tend to like to commiserate. We tend to like people to agree with our position in life. And so what we do is when we're feeling this, we'll go find somebody that will go, yes, amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah, wow, well, man, life, life is horrible. I mean, it's just wretched. I mean, things are going to hell in a handbasket, and what's this government of ours doing? And oh my gosh, you know, Putin's got his finger on the nuclear bomb, and it's all going to be, and we're all going to die, and it's going to be horrible. And you will find a lot of people agree with you in that. And that does nothing except to torment zero. It does zero. It takes and robs and steals. It will cause you not to sleep at night. It'll give you upset stomach. You will be on edge all the time. You'll become grumpy, and then you'll end up in the mountains or in Mexico City by yourself naked fighting for a taco. (laughs) So why do you say that? Because that's how we allow our imagination to run. Oh my God, what's the story? I'm, I'm looking at this crowd. There's some young people here. So if you weren't born before 2000, you're not going to understand. Well, If you weren't born before 1980, you ain't going to understand this. Remember the story of Chicken Little? Oh, thank God there's an old crowd. Skies falling. The sky's falling. He's running. It was a drop of rain. Skies falling. You will find enough people. You will. Oh, yeah, you know, God's turned his back. It's done. It's over. He don't like you. God don't like you. He, in fact, God woke me up this morning, told me, he don't like you. He, Pat, he loves you. He loves you. He, and you'll find enough people. Don't go look for people like that. Don't go have a pity party. You'll find enough people to come. Go find somebody that's on top. Go find somebody that will look at you and go, man, it's good. God is good. We serve a good Father. Listen to Ecclesiastics 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. For he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Find somebody. I fi- you know what the great thing about my wife is? I'll just brag about my wife. She is eternally positive. It's rare. It is a rarity when she comes home bummed out. It has happened, but it's rare. And I just, I just hang out with my wife. Why? She's always positive. She's always, like, she's always the glass is half full. Always. Always. Even if it's got mud in it, it's a half full glass of mud. (laughs) Number four, act on your faith, not your doubts. That's what Noah did when he built the ark. That's what Abraham did when he... Offered Isaac, that's what Moses did when he marched through the Red Sea on dry ground. That's what David did when he faced Goliath. That's what Joshua did when he marched around Jericho. That's what Daniel did when he was thrown into the lion's den. That's what Nehemiah did when he built the wall. And don't think for a moment, church, that these great heroes of the faith had, didn't have doubts. Of course they did. Nehemiah is probably a, one of the great stories of this. When Nehemiah came to build the wall, there were a couple guys that were set to resist him, San Blatt and Tobiah. And for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe they thought cities shouldn't have walls anymore or, or they didn't want that wall built or, or maybe they didn't like Nehemiah or they thought they should do it, but they begin to work against him. And they did all the tricks of the trade. And, and the, here's the thing, They're predictable. Because the devil can't create. So the devil's one-dimensional. So what do they do? They blame. They accuse. They accuse Nehemiah. Yeah, you know what he's doing? He's collecting all this money to build the wall, but he's really just doing it. He's getting it for himself. He's taking all the food that he should be, seeing, and he's just eating. You know he's, you know, he's one of these rich pastors. And I, hey, look, I know there has been people that have done that, but that doesn't mean everybody's done it. So here, I'm. A, here, let's do this. I'm a pastor. Yeah, us rich pastors. Well, how about you rich folk? See, it's a two-way street, right? That's the way accusation is, isn't it? It's like, how about we just do what Jesus says? Don't judge because you don't have enough information to make a judgment. That ain't even in the notes. I'm not sure who that's for. But they activated their faith. Look at Psalms 37, 3 through 5. Trust in the Lord and do good. Yeah. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Yeah. Bible says a double-minded man is unstable and knows all his ways. You can't be in faith and in doubt and go, I don't know which one to do. Decide commit your way. I have doubts, but I'm going to activate my faith. That leads us to number five, and it's a little cliche-ish, but hang on, I'll explain it. Doubt your doubts, not your faith. What this means is don't cast your faith away simply because you're struggling. See, when we struggle in our faith, we are tempted to, to give in to our doubts and our fears, our worries. You know, it's always amazing. Do you remember the story of Jonah? And I promise I'm going to be done in a minute. I'm taking too much. Do you remember the story of Jonah? And the chapter one, Jonah chapter one, here's Jonah. He's on the boat. He shouldn't be there. He should be going to Nineveh, but he isn't. He's going the opposite way. God creates a storm. And listen, he didn't create a whale, he created a fish. It was a supernatural event. Amen. And so he's in the bottom of the boat hiding. But what did all the sailors do on the boat? Go read it. The first thing they did in the storm is they threw everything overboard that they were hauling. That was their source of income. So what do they do? Here, I know what to do. Let's throw everything that's really, really good off the boat. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't enough. So then what they do is they throw all the rigging. Everything is going to make the boat work. Let's throw that off. Then, well, maybe we ought to pray. And they figure out that, you know, Jonah's the problem. And they go, why did you do this to him? He goes, well, you know, I didn't really want to go to Nineveh. He goes, I'm really the problem. He goes, you probably ought to throw me over. And they throw him over in the storm. And they're sitting there. I can see these guys sitting, looking at boxes of stuff that they're supposed to be hauling. All the rigging is sinking, and they're like, hey, why didn't we just grab this guy and throw him over first? Why didn't we just pray? But see, as human beings, that's what we do. What we do is we start struggling, and the first thing that goes is, I'm going to throw the church away. I'm never going back to church. I'm going to throw the Word of God away because God, you know what? He's big, and He could create all kinds of things, but He can't keep one book together to save His life, so I'm going to throw the Word away. And then all my friends—they're really—they're just you know what—they're fake. They're fake. They're fake Christians. We throw them away. <laughs> what? What? What should we do? We should throw your doubts away. Amen. Hebrews chapter ten verse thirty-five says this: Do not therefore cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance. One man put it this way, or actually one, one version of the Bible says, you have need of patience. That after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, cast your bread on the waters. And then in many days, it'll come back to you. Underline many days. You say, what are you doing, preacher? I'm being real. Sometimes things take time. Number six, and Jason can come play the piano. (laughs) There are some things that you will never understand this side of heaven. All of us have questions that we can't answer, they revolve around the whys of life, and we have to be good with the mystery. There's a lot of questions I have about healing, but I've solidified it. God is our healer. People come to me all the time and say, why didn't I get healed? I don't know. There was a time in my life, in my, when I was a young pastor, I would look at people and go, it's because you're filled with sin. Because you're nothing but a nasty sinner. The reason you didn't get healed is because you got some hidden, deep, dark sin, and we probably really need to probe the depths of your psyche to find out where you're sinning. Yeah, well my goodness, that didn't work real well. Then I graduated from that and I thought, well, it might not be sin, it's just probably the fact that you don't got enough faith. And then I then God spoke to me and said, How about your faith? Uh, Oops. And I had people in my life that were not in sin. And they walked in faith, but they're not getting healed. And I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. And so I decided i choose. I believe God's my healer. He always wants to heal. It is His will to heal. Now look at. let me show you why. The Bible says this, he, God's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Yet many perish and don't repent. So I don't understand all the ins and outs of that dynamic. But I do trust my God is for me, and he is exactly who he says he is. And he paid a price. He submitted to the brutality of the crucifixion and allowed his body to be broken to pay for my healing. And he does not teach me a lesson by putting on me that which he paid to take off me. Preach that sermon later. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says, "Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we'll see everything perfectly clear. And that I know that I know now is part that, and all that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely." We're not going to understand everything, and we have to be good with the mystery. Number seven, in final closing, keep going back to what you know to be true. This is probably one of the most important ones for me, because this is what I have to come back to. Paul writes in Romans 8, 37 through 39, he says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says, for I am persuaded I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come, heights, death, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In troubling times, what we have to do, church, is we have to go back to what we know. See, there's a few things in my life that I am absolutely persuaded about, and I go back to them all the time. And I don't care what I'm seeing. Me seeing the manifestation is not where my faith lies. My faith lies in the fact that he said it. His word is yes and amen. His promises, all of them. He said yes, I say amen. Listen to me as I close this. God never turns away an honest doubter, never. You need to come to him with your doubts, with your skepticism, with your unbelief, your hard questions, your sincere uncertainties. And he will welcome you. And if you have doubts, cry out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Then get ready, because God will answer that prayer. Can you say amen? Amen. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you, God, for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us this revelation. And I pray for every person in this room today, God, that in the midst of their struggle, you would reveal yourself and make yourself strong. God, that you would encourage us and strengthen us. Everyone watching online, Father, I pray that you touch them and minister to them, God, that your grace would be upon them. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask my ministry team to come, those that minister in prayer to come up front. I just want to encourage you, church, as you go, that you go and that you, first of all, stop condemning yourself and start reaching out to Jesus. Let him encourage you. He will. He will encourage you, and he will strengthen you. I also want to say for all the ladies tonight, five o'clock right here for Bloom and all the men, men in the youth room, Men of valor. We want to see you. Why don't we stand to our feet? If you need prayer of any kind or anything, come on up. Let these pray with you. God bless you today. You're free to go. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the New Life Kingman podcast. We can't wait to see you next week.